Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Associate Pastor Ron King continues a series on the life of David. Have you ever wondered why your gratitude towards God has lost its punch? Perhaps your view of him is warped or weak. Let's discover why David's view of God was tremendous and why he had a heart after God through Psalm 97. Also, as part of the Something to Say series, we'll start the message with someone's testimony. And this week, there are three people who will be baptized and they are sharing their testimonies. We hope you find them encouraging. Now, here's today's message. Good morning, Northwest Hills. My name is uh, TJ Villanueva, and I believe I've been at the church for about seven years now. So I am a product of God putting people into my life to continually assure me and pursue me so that I can become the best person that I can possibly be so I can be a faithful servant to Jesus. Yeah, I didn't necessarily grow up in the church up until I would say about the end of my sophomore years where I got introduced to youth group. And so that's kind of where I really started to have a relationship with um, Jesus. And it was an on 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 again, off again relationship with Jesus. I would say I wasn't following him wholly up until I got out of high school and up until certain points in my life where I was in some lows and highs. And just, he was the one thing that's always been super consistent in my life. And so that's kind of one of, that's kind of why I want to declare my faith to the rest of the world and just encourage other people to kind of do the same. I'm super thankful for God for just the grace he's given me um, and just the people he's put into my life um, to continually pursue me um, and assure me and encourage me just in my walk with him. And so I want to declare that to the church, to the rest of the world, and I just want to keep continually pursuing him. I would love to encourage people to um, really be bold in their faith because um, without people being bold in their faith, people like me wouldn't be able to be in the position they're at today. I want to get baptized today because I want to show not only the church, but the world uh, that I believe that Jesus died for my sin, rose again, so that I may be risen with him and be free of sin. Hey church, I'm Kylan. I'm in eighth grade and I've been going to church my whole life. I've been going to church my whole life, um, every weekend, but I've never understood what faith was. I never um, understood what putting like my trust in Jesus was or the uh, stories I was told. Um, my mom, me and my mom had talked about me going to my friend's youth group. I uh, didn't think it would be a great idea because I wouldn't understand what they were saying and what was the point in trying. Um, but then out of nowhere, my friend asked me to come, so I just decided to go. Uh, the, we went to Spring Olympics for the first thing I ever did, and yeah, I had a blast. I started going every Wednesday and understanding the messages I was hearing. After about six months, I realized I was praying every single day, um, and, I, and I started understanding the stories I was hearing. After about two years, going to Northwest Hills, everything started to click. I understood what I was hearing, and I was putting it into my life. I understand now I'm a sinner. Um, and that I have to put my trust in Jesus. Um, and I want to get baptized to show that I'm a new person and that I'm committed to Jesus. Good morning. My name is Paul. Um, I've been going to Northwest Hills for about two, one and a half, two years now. Yeah, so I'm also a product of the people around me. It was one of my buddies in high school. I was junior year. He was like, hey man, come to church with me and my family. I was like, dude, like I'm there. I'm, I'm coming with you. So I started going regularly, went to youth group, and then kind of throughout the rest of high school, started college, and then 
I got connected with a group on campus at Oregon State, and my faith really took off from there. Made it my own, had a, a discipler, and I'd really just kind of started reading the Word, taking notes, studying, praying, all that kind of stuff. And as I said, I got connected on campus at Oregon State, and I, I just really was looking to find a church. My same buddy that invited me to church way back in high school, he's going to college, he's like, hey man, we go to Northwest Hills, and I'm like, dude, I'm there. So I started going to Northwest Hills, it really feels like home. Now I'm here, now I'm leading students, and yeah, God's been with me all the way. Even when I wasn't going to church, I could really feel that God was with me and He's been with me throughout my whole life. And so I just praise God that I'm here today and He just continues to be with me. I want to get baptized today to just declare my faith to the church and the people around me and just to show that I'm going to continue to be a follower of Jesus for the rest of my life as long as I live. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking about getting baptized, I would just encourage you to go for it. It's an act of obedience that shows the people around you that you just really love God and you, you care for Him. JJ walks up to me and says, all right, knock him dead. And I thought, that's actually not what I want to do. <laughs> what, what I'd really love to do is inspire you. Like, did you notice all three guys um, that were giving their testimony were wearing... OSU gear, big fans. And so here's my dream this morning is to take you from the, like the club level, people who enjoy all the refreshments but don't like cheer, and bring you down into the student section this morning. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping to do. So good morning, church family. I'm Ron. Like many of you, I've loved being part of this um, series on David this uh, last few weeks. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate your words and uh, challenge. And thinking through his life, right, there are so many great adventures and amazing victories. And then there's the whole tragic losses and mistakes and sin and messed up family. And all the whole picture has been inspiring me, encouraging me, challenging me in my walk with Jesus. Um, But if we just have the historical narrative, which is what we have been going through, and David's life. That's the only picture. Then it leaves you wondering, God, is this really a man after God's own heart? So if, if you're new with us, you're just joining with us, or you're online with us, um, by the way, those of you who are online, we look forward to seeing you next week here. Um, but if you're just joining the series, we've been in a series in David's life. And if we just have the picture of the historical narrative, you don't really capture what is it that was, like, why would God call him a man after his heart? And what we see in the Psalms helps us understand that, because you know this, for those of you who are students of Scripture, that um, really at least half of the Psalms are attributed to David. That's 75 out of the 150. And we know they wrote a lot more than that, And when he did, he writes out in poetic fashion. He's a musician like some of you. He uses his art to describe his passion. And he pours it out uh, through lament sometimes where he's just transparent before the things that he's struggling with and his depression, his, his angst and his joy and his thanksgiving, his gratitude, his confession, The whole stream of emotions is there in Scripture, helping us see that this is a man who did actually have, even though he failed on multiple occasions, he had a heart after God. 
And it's easy for us to look at David's life and go down this judgmental road, right? To look at him and like, I would never do the things that he did. And I would just encourage you before you do that, as you study people, as you read scripture, to do two things first. First, look in the mirror, right? Look in the mirror carefully and remember all of the tragic, foolish things that you personally have done. How you've sinned against the Lord and separated yourself from the God who has always loved you. That's a hard thing to do consistently, right? But it's an important thing to do because that leads you into part of David's heart, why he was able to confess, because he actually did look in the mirror, and even though he hated what he saw sometimes, he was able to get honest before the Lord and with others about that. And the second thing you should do is just read the Psalms, man. Just just look at how to open up a heart and be vulnerable before God. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those Psalms. It's Psalms 97. If you turn there in your Bible, Psalm 97. And it reveals David acknowledging that he is a limited person and his God is unlimited. He is transcendent. He is greater than he can imagine. And he's going to respond. How do we respond to that kind of God? And Psalm 97 was going to challenge us that way. Here's the issue, though. Whenever we think about the sovereignty, the majesty, the rule and reign of God, it's we wrestle, we grapple with this internal issue that we struggle with this temptation to put God on the throne, take him off the throne, and put ourselves on the throne. You know what I'm saying? We struggle, we grapple with the lordship of God. So this morning we're going to dive into that. It's this age-old question of why would we become a petulant child in front of a mighty God and want to lead him and be in control and do our own things and be disobedient, all that stuff. Why would we try to take control out of a God who loves us and who's sovereign and is in control? It's foolish, right? And it's certainly David's struggle and my personal struggle, I think, is probably yours. And Psalm 97 speaks insightfully to these truths. So we're going to stand up and read it together, but we're not going to use your Bible. We're going to use the one that's on the screen. It's a translation from Eugene Peterson called The Message, and it puts it in some fresh language. And I hope that as you study it this week, you'll be able to be challenged and sharpened by that. Let's stand. We're going to read it together as it's on the screen. That is, you're going to participate in the reading. And then, um, yeah, and then we're going to respond to that. Man, isn't God good? Isn't the word good? You're going to be saying, thanks be to God. So here's from the message. We're going to all read it starting in verse 1, Psalm 97. Ready? One, two, three. God rules. There's something to shout over. On the double, mainlands and islands celebrate. Bright clouds and storm clouds circle round him. Right and justice anchor his rule. Fire blazes out before him, flaming high up the craggy mountains. His lightnings light up the world. Earth, wide-eyed, trembles in fear. The mountains take one look at God and melt Melt like wax before the earth's Lord. The heavens announce that he'll set everything right, and everyone will see it happen. Glorious. 
All who serve handcrafted gods will be sorry. And they were so proud of their ragamuffin gods. On your knees, all you gods, worship him. And Zion, you listen and take heart. Daughters of Zion, sing your hearts out. God has done it all, has set everything right. You, God, are high God of the cosmos, far, far higher than any of the gods. God loves all who hate evil, and those who love him keep safe, snatches them from the grip of the wicked. Light seeds are planted in the souls of God's people. Joy seeds are planted in the good heart soil. So, God's people, shout praise to God. Give thanks to our holy God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this morning, I want to shine some truths on some of this rich stuff that we just discovered and just read together. I was reading God's word. And here's how it starts. You know it, but sometimes we don't live it. God rules. And there's something to shout about. Like all the earth, there's something to shout about. So why does all creation, the stars, the earth, monkeys and shellfish and even worms, praise the sovereignty of God and I struggle with that? What's with that? Sovereignty. The Bible describes it as the rule and the reign of God over all things. The cosmos, the earth, history, you and I, good and even evil. And according to the psalm writer, his sovereignty is intended to stoke the fires of our faith and get us thanking him like we haven't. To move us out of the club level and into the student section to praise him with all that I have. So why do we settle for being in the club seats? Why do we settle for mediocrity in our praise? Are we muffled by cultural expectations? I don't want to get too carried away with my faith or my religion here. Or something worse going on? Have we come to believe that this central claim of the Bible, the absolute sovereignty of our God is not in fact true? Or do we ignore that fundamental truth because it's uncomfortable and maybe confining to us? Perhaps, but I think the Bible scholar R.C. Sproul has put his finger on it when he said, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. Whew, that's pretty convicting, isn't it? Right? We want to claim a high view as followers of Jesus, if you are. If you're not, you're just discovering this, wrestling with it, that's great. You're welcome here. But for those of us who seek to follow Jesus and honor his word, we we acknowledge in our head that he's sovereign, but in our hearts, in our practice, it's challenging to us. It's difficult for us. And there's a few reasons why this is true, I think. First, we can grasp on to what only belongs to God. Like grabbing onto an electric wire and think we control the current. That desire, of course, is at the root of all sin. We join Adam and Eve in their thoughtless, self-destructive junk. Their decisions, their rebellion, 
And it was rebellion against the rule of God, right? Against the sovereignty of God. Sproul has also written, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against the perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? Of the most minute picadillo? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We're saying no to the righteousness of God. We're saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I'm above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. Whew, that's tough stuff, isn't it? I would add to this powerful statement, sin is treason against the essence of the gospel, the essence of Christmas, actually, that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Jesus is Lord. That's what we proclaim here. That's the heart of Christmas and of our faith, that he is Lord. And sin is treason against that. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's only one. My sin is grasping for a different lordship. And you would have thought that I would have learned by now. You would have thought after viewing, like, we went through the whole Bible, right, last year. You would have thought we learned this central lesson, like, it's a lot smarter to follow and to lean into the sovereignty of God than to try to grasp into my own lordship. But like the self-focused people that we can often easily be, we fail to learn from the lessons of others and we sink into the mire of their own sin. So can I ask you this morning an all-important question? What are you left with at the end of all things, devoid of the sovereignty of God? What are you left with? Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 that God has had a plan throughout all the ages, and that plan has always been headed in one direction, that Jesus reigns. That's the plan. And that plan cannot and will not be thwarted or changed. He will put all powers and authorities in subjection to himself. This is where history is headed. So why shouldn't I get on board with that? Right? Why shouldn't I get on board and embrace the sovereignty of God? And here's my second critical error when I think about this great doctrine I can fail to fully enjoy the implications of his sovereignty. The reality of the sovereignty of God should give us like this great confidence and hope and joy, especially in this season when we know God is faithful to his plan. He, Jesus did come, and he did conquer sin and death so that I might have life. That's why we're doing this, like doing the baptism thing this morning. It's a proclamation of his power, of resurrection, of life for us. And yet I can fail to fully lean into that. The psalm says, so 
Shout for joy. Like, joy all creation and get up and start cheering him. That's what we're compelled to do. And the beauty of the gospel proclaimed at Christmas is that God has always been sovereign and he has met our greatest needs, our need for rescue, for salvation from our sin, from leaning into his, away from our lordship and into the lordship of God. And that should compel our obedience and praise. It should get us like all people who encountered God throughout Scripture and saw his glory and his sovereignty for what it was to get down on our knees and to bow before him and to do it with enthusiasm. Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We might participate in Christ. We might enjoy and live and acknowledge his sovereignty over all my days. I was at the store um, the other day and I saw Salvation Army people going, ding, 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 ding. Have you seen them again? Like this year? It's a familiar thing. It gets me smiling all the time. And I typically say, oh, I give through my church or through Love Inc. or whatever. You know, I, I tell them how I'm doing, but I want to have a conversation because I'm glad they're there. The founder of the, uh, Salvation Army, William Booth, who together with his wife founded it, Catherine, once said, the greatness of man's power is the measure of his surrender. That's good, isn't it? I'll repeat it. The greatness of man's power is the measure of his surrender. Here's what he's saying. When I yield to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign plan for the world and for my life, then I receive his power, a power far greater than anything that I could imagine or scare up in my own self. And the flip side is also true. The measure of a person's weakness is found in their inability to surrender to the sovereignty of God. That's the measure of my weakness when I can't submit to the sovereignty of God. And I'm left with weakness and chaos and failure in my life when I don't. The psalm continues, verse 2, bright clouds and storm clouds circle around him. You get the imagery here? Right and justice anchor his rule. Fire blazes out before him, flaming high up in the craggy mountains, His lightnings light up the world. Earth wide-eyed trembles in fear. The mountains take one look at God and melt, melt like wax before the earth's Lord. The heavens announce that he'll set everything right and everyone will see it happen. Glorious. I like that, right? I like that explanation point. And all who serve handcrafted gods will be sorry for they were so proud of their ragamuffin gods. It's just awesome contrast, Right? between those who embrace the vision, the reality of God's power and rule and reign, and those who follow cheap trinkets, other gods. There's two key phrases I want you to lean into in that portion of the psalm. Here's the first one in verse 2. It says this in the ESV translation, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. These are core central pieces of the character of God that ground his sovereignty. 
Biblical righteousness means morally excellent and pure in character, conscience, and conduct. That's when we read that word righteousness and it's speaking about the righteousness of God, that's what it means. Morally excellent and pure in character, conscience, and conduct. And according to the Bible, it's core to the very nature and acts of God. And it's best revealed in Jesus when he came. That was righteousness that came down in a manger and that lived on earth. And righteousness that lived a pure life and died on a cross for us so that we might know life. It was righteousness that defeated death through his resurrection. In addition, God's righteousness is intended to give us perspective and confidence. I look at the newspaper, I see all this junk, and I can rely on the righteousness of God because his rule and his reign will not be defeated and a righteous God will reign forever. Biblical justice is the real-life outworking of the righteousness of God. And it has two key characteristics to it. It's retributive. That is, it punishes sin. That's why if you walked in this morning and you've never experienced what it means to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and place your faith in Him, you are an object of God's wrath, like all of us. But Jesus stepped in and satisfied that wrath. He took that upon Himself. And that's the second piece of justice. It's restorative. In God's sovereign plan, he always seeks to bring healing and wholeness to us, to restore us to the image of God. So biblical justice has those two key factors. It is radical in its generosity, and it is equal in its application to every person we all have the opportunity to respond to the grace of God. And it is life-changing in its advocacy that he advocates for us. And it's asymmetrical in its responsibility. That is, I deserve justice, but I didn't get it because he took it upon himself. So these qualities are key to the foundation of the eternal government of God. His righteousness and justice. And then verse 6 tells us he will set everything right. David has this perspective inspired by God's Spirit, and we should know it as people who are New Testament believers that he will set everything right. He has done that through the cross, and one day we have this great hope, don't we? Hello? One day we have this great hope that he will set everything right for all eternity, God rules. And all this wonder-inducing truth cries out for a response. So the psalmist writes, On your knees, all you gods, worship him. And Zion, you listen and take heart. Daughters of Zion, sing your hearts out. I like that phrase. God has done it all. He has set everything right. You, God, are high God of the cosmos far, far higher than any of the gods. So the ESV says, so rejoice. Have that fill your whole being. If you haven't noticed recently as you're walking through the scriptures, there's over 49 times in scripture where we are commanded to rejoice. And I ask myself the question, why is that? 
because they don't do it enough, right? That's why God would keep reminding me to do it. Like, I get so internally focused on my own stuff. And so I, I'm like an Eeyore sometimes in the presence of God, of a mighty God who has done everything for me. Why shouldn't that characteristic of rejoicing flavor all that I am and all that we are together as a church? Can you imagine, just for a moment, what would happen to this city if that marked every one of us and it marked us as a church, that kind of electric, loud giving out of our thanksgiving and praise? It would change the way people think about our faith, about our Lord, if we responded to him correctly. And then the psalmist continues, God loves all who hate evil, and those who love him, he keeps safe, snatches them from the grip of the wicked. Elsewhere, David writes, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you, Psalm 5.4. And Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That is, he hates something. He hates evil. And he calls us, and David calls us in his psalm, to join him. That's interesting, right? Now, how does that square with the love of God? How does this call square with his love? Well, I believe in the context of this psalm that hating evil is sharing God's commitment to righteousness and justice. It's sharing God's grief and anger over the consequences of sin and evil in our world. That's not antithetical to love and truth. It is who God is, a righteous and just God. And when I hate evil, I participate in the nature and the practice of God. It's choosing not to be apathetic toward evil or dismissive about evil in my world and in my own life. So I should ask the question, how do I hate evil? How does that work itself out while living out the love of Christ? So Scripture is pretty clear. gives us two basic things to do. Here they are. First, run from it. Right? Run on a personal level from evil. Don't like see how close you can get up to the line. Because evil can be attractive to us, and we can be fools. So Paul writes, flee from these things, you man of God, you woman of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And first Timothy, that's First Timothy 6.11. And 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from the useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Run from evil and do it together with Paul and with Russ. Let's together do this. We run away from it with the, with the company of your community group or your friends group with some other women in your life, like make sure you ask the questions. One of our elders asked the question just in a text <laughs> yesterday, I think it was yesterday, who uh, is a Jack who keeps us all accountable. And um, he says, any of you had an affair this week? Like it, it's just a, like one of like random questions and we're like, whoa, whoa, that like 
fortunately, we were all able to say, no, that wasn't us. But I'm glad that he asked, right? I'm glad that he's asking those kind of questions that make you think, how faithful am I to sue this week? How, how did I do with that? That's an important question to ask. And how do we as a group together run away from evil? And secondly, Scripture tells us, I should stand up against it. I should take a stand against it in my life and in my culture. Right In Scripture, there's two different arenas where it takes place. I should hate evil on a personal level, resisting the adversary, my adversary, the evil one, through the power of God's Spirit working in me. If I'm a believer, you have God's Spirit, and that's one of His chief functions in you to help you to run away from evil, right? And then to stand up against it. And there's this public arena where my hatred of evil should find the right expression. Amos writes in Amos chapter 5, verse 15, these words, Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, that it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. When we observe evil in our culture, we are called to expose it and to advocate for righteousness and justice. When I see the plight of the unborn or the abused or those taken advantage of because of their age or their race or economic standing, I should seek to do justice. When I see evil being promoted in our schools, you with me here? or the public squares, that should grieve me and I should find the right avenues to advance righteousness and justice. Those actions, they can't come out of some condescending, over-spiritualized version of who I can be, but they must come out of the love of good and the love of God's righteousness and justice. Tolerating evil in the name of acceptance and inclusivity, it only leads to the increase of evil in our culture. And that evil will deeply wound people that we are called to love, who are separated from the love of God. Ultimately, it will lead people to hell. So I cannot be silent in the face of evil. I should hate it. But what if I do become an advocate for justice? What will happen, right? Won't that mean I'll lose friends and suffer the opposition of others? Yes, it will. But who is your real Lord? Who is your sovereign? And what is his eternal plan for this world and for you? When I face down evil, the psalm says, God has my back. He supports me. He will care for me. And then, verse 11 Light seeds are planted in the souls of God's people. That's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? Joy seeds are planted in good heart soil. So God's people shout praise to God, give thanks to our holy God. Something powerful happens when I have the right view of God. And when engaged and connected to his nature and character and his love for this world. It's the opposite of what hate produces. For those who still wrestle with submitting to the sovereignty of God, that would be all of us, right? Consider the aspects and the flavors of God's reign. 
and compare them to the promises of what would happen if you were Lord. Right? For it's an inescapable truth that at one point in time, Scripture tells us every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is He's sovereign. He's the Lord of all. So how do we respond to that? David tells us it's not that complicated. Give thanks. Like with everything you have, give thanks. I shouldn't have to do this, but I'm going to give you three tips to apply the truth of Scripture right now. Here they are. First, give thanks when I wake up in the morning and I lie down at night. Right? Like start the day off. David wrote in Psalm 65, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening for this purpose, to shout for joy. That's why he did it. So in the morning and the evening, I ought to do that. Even if it wakes people up around you, just do it randomly. Wouldn't that be fun? And I apologize to those people in my house who know that I'm a morning person about that. So, If God made the morning and evening for this, then maybe I should make room for it, right? Secondly, by singing in harmony with all creation. That's what the psalm compels us to do. And David writes in Psalm 69, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. When you give thanks, think about being part of a choir, an even bigger choir than what was in the lobby earlier. It's the choir that proclaims in view of the sovereign God how great he is, and we're thankful for that, for his sovereignty. And third, in making our shared response match his majesty. You might want to this week just name out the reasons why you value his sovereignty. It'd be a great reminder. And thank him. Take care to let him know that he's got your heart and he's going to come out of your mouth. Your praise, O oh God, it, it can't be silenced. Let me join with all creation. Get somewhere that you can not annoy or wake up people or whatever and shout out your joy to the Lord. Just do it. Let it out. Amen. And, bring, and bring others in on that response, right? Just like you said. So we're going to join our hearts in worship and praise and thanks to the Lord, our sovereign God. I'm going to invite you to participate with all that you have. But let me turn in prayer before we go there together. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. So sovereign God, we thank you for this great psalm. Um, it's actually a great psalm for this season because your birth proclaims the sovereignty and the goodness of your plan to bring righteousness and justice to the world and to me. And so because of who you are, your nature and your character, your sovereignty, your rule and reign, I thank you. And all God's people said,
Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.